I was on my honeymoon and uh, we were in Copenhagen. I was watch crazy, but I only owned a couple at this point. And I kind of looked to my left walking. And it was the last night of the trip. That's the other thing. Looked to the left, saw a, just a store that said vintage on a little shingle hanging outside. So I was like, all right, let's walk by. It was mostly clothes, luggage, stuff like that. But on the floor in the store window, the display window, there were five watches and one of them was an Ed White Speedmaster. Mm. And like, I didn't have a Speedmaster at the time, but I, as many people just getting into vintage, that's one of the places you start, right? Cause it's just 100%. iconic. Yeah. And so I see it and that's the one with the story that like truly is the foundational moment for me where the stories that come with these things, now that's my story, right? Sure. It had a whole life before it came to me. That was a really cool moment for my wife and I. And ever since then, that's been a cornerstone of my collection. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening. And please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today's guest is my friend Rob Stakey, a watch collector most of you know by the moniker Bazumu. We took this one from my kitchen table as Rob was in town for business and decided to come by so we could record in person. A longtime collector, Rob's passion for watches is evident in the condition-driven heavy hitters he brought along with him. In the company of a true connoisseur, Rob's collection is the definition of history intertwined with craftsmanship and elegance converging with innovation. A seeker of great condition, he's got some of the best examples in his collection and truly some stuff that I may never get to see twice in person. With such a fondness for horology, you can only imagine that this isn't merely about possession or even obsession, but more of an extension of who he is as a friend and a collector. With a relentless pursuit to what we call by right, he's traveled all over the world to build his collection. So without further ado, this is Rob Stakey for Collector's Dream Radio. Rob, long time in the making here, but welcome back to Arizona and uh, welcome to Collector's Zoom Radio. Thank you for having me in your house. Oh, so, uh, glad we could do this in person. Yeah, don't give out my address. <laughs> <laughs> Not too early for a beer, but uh, maybe we'll wait till after or something. But yeah, yeah, we'll uh, we'll celebrate with one for, for sure. sure. Yeah. So most know you under the name Bazamu, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you and where that name came from? Because that's definitely not your name. It's not. Uh, yeah, I kind of hide behind it. I think um, I was starting a, an Instagram at the very beginning of the watch Instagram, you know, craze and had a really hard time coming up with a name. I actually had a name before that one. That what was, was that? It was so bad. I <laughs> okay, actually, forget it. No, no, no. I'll, I'll do it. It was uh, <laughs> pronounced whiskey. It was W-I-S-C-H-I. I was in Chicago, and W-I-S is like, watch Idiot Savant, right? For like sure. That big thing. But that was even more confusing to everybody. Yeah, that's clever. And I don't even really drink whiskey. So <laughs> it was, uh, we had to scrap it. And um, no, I had this this job at the time that for the first time, really in my career, had more normal hours. So I found myself with all this time and uh, I wanted to start a little website and write about the watches I would find, stuff like that. And it's one of those things where making up a word sticks in people's brains a lot more than just, you know, picking words off a shelf. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a totally made up word. Uh, it. It's based on a Turkish word for vintage, Cool, but it's just like in, you know, an English version of it, basically. So, Love it. yeah, no, I hide behind it, and um, it's been good. People can call me by whatever they want, Robert <laughs> Bosmill. Perfect. It. Yeah. Well, I know you're fairly private when it comes to your personal life, so I appreciate you coming on today. And um, you have an amazing collection. We'll dive into all that. Where did your love affair for watches come? I think I always liked mechanical things growing up. I had a grandfather who was a big tinkerer. He was always like in the garage making stuff. <laughs> I can um, picture it now. Yeah. My, my dad always, you know, liked gadgets. We had 
like laser disc players, mini disc players, you know, all kinds of whatever the, the latest thing was. And so I think when I was growing up, uh, that's when, you know, the Indiglo watches, mm, the Timex. Timex Ironmans, right? So that was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Um, I had one of those, those really weird shaped Nike watches, if you remember those. They kind of looked like a swoosh on your wrist. It, the, oh, interesting. I don't know if you've seen these. I'm sure my brothers know. They haven't yeah. aged very well, but uh, those, you know, I had one of those too. And I think built up a few of these things in like middle school, stuff like that. Um, I and I, I stuff too. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of those things. What's the weirdest thing you've ever had? I had, I mean, I was for, for a long time, I was like super into like Nixon 5130s, which is like I've mentioned before. It's like a grandfather clock on your wrist. Yeah. I had one of those. Yeah. Actually. They're massive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, they were, that was my formal watch in yeah, high school. Yeah. yeah it could, yeah. could definitely fit under a cuff at yeah. 50 millimeters. Right. But, um, that of course, like as a kid with forty dollars in his pocket from umpiring a baseball game in middle school, Invictus. Yeah. Oh yeah, sadly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sadly. Oh, hey, that's yeah. a that's a building block. It got yeah. started. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. And I think too, as I was getting into high school, that's when Fossil mm. became a big thing. Fossil watches they come in that little tin. I don't yep. know if you remember that. For sure. And, like they looked. You know, back at the time for a mall watch, they looked pretty good. So I kind of built up that little it's not a collection, right? But I, I had owned multiple watches along the way. And yeah, that kind of lit the the spark. I, I dropped it pretty much through college. guess I had my eye on other things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, once I started working and I had a little money in my pocket, that's, uh, that's when it came back and hasn't really stopped since then. First and last watch you bought? First watch of my life? Yeah. Uh, so the first one that I bought... That started your collection. Okay. So the first one I bought post college, which I think is really where the, the spark came back, right? So yep. I, I'd start it there, was a, uh, a Luminox. Cool. Right. So it was, uh, I'll send you a picture of it. It's pretty cool. It's, you know, $200 course watch, but they it, never fail though. It, it will, the loom was awesome. Yep. And the 12 o'clock loom was orange and the rest of it was green. So yeah. I love that. It had a blue dial, which mm. is still something that I'm like, just a magnet to even today. Yeah. And it had this strap that was sort of like a, a Velcro NATO looking thing. Sick. Right. So to somebody who knows nothing, it's like, Oh, that looks pretty sweet. So I, I had to kind of hunt it down at a fishing store or something like that. <laughs> That's in, the best. Uh, Dallas where I was at the time. And uh, that watch I think has been on like four continents with me, went on my honeymoon, all that kind of stuff. And I was into watches at the time, uh, like really into it at the time I got married, but still have it. So that's like really the, the first one. Um, and then the last watch that I have bought is actually, see for people at home, you can't see this, but <laughs> we have a million watches on the table right now. Yeah, this is, silly, uh, it's a first execution Hoyer Carrera 2447. It's perfect. With a metallic outer track on it. It's, yeah, I mean. And the original sticker on the back. Yeah, and you can't see the sticker, but it's incredible. Yeah, um, it's, it's lived a life for sure. Yeah, it, it looks like it's hardly been lived with at all, actually. It looks like <laughs> it just came from the store. Maybe it's life was sitting in a drawer, but yeah, yeah it, it lived a life. So, uh, yeah, now it's here. So as, as we look at a lot of your collection that's here, there's kind of like a clear lineage and, and path as to what you really like um, with a couple strays, uh, Q, Longa one, Turbion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is there a criteria for you as to what makes the cut when you buy something? Is it really conditioned or are you just buying what catches your eye? I think it's an arc. I think a lot of people have this. And I'd be curious to get your take too because mm -hmm. I – I'm curious if this is just me or you as well. But I think when I started, I really started buying vintage watches mainly back in like 2014. And my philosophy at the time was buy as much as possible. Not, not in a, you know, overly materialistic type of way, right? But it's more, hey, I don't know much about that. It's only 2,500 bucks. Try it. I'm going to go buy it. And if I don't like it, I can sell it for 2,500 bucks. Right. 2200 bucks, whatever it is, but I yeah. learned, right? So I started buying everything, everything vintage, basically. Yeah. 
and started really kind of honing my taste, the brands, the, sh- the case shapes, that kind of stuff that I liked. I think in the last like three or four years, condition is the single driving thing that I look for. So like it could be a super unique watch. It could be something that's been on my list forever. If it has not aged well, I'm just not going to buy it because yeah. it's not going to sing to me like I, you know, like a lot of the other watches I have do. What about you? Condition meaning case condition, dial condition, all of that. I mean, obviously all of it is important, but if you had to choose one. Dial drives most of it for me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So like dial and hands, if it's vintage, that have aged really well and together, that's important. And if if it's a case that has a bunch of facets, so if it's like a CB case speedy, Hmm. Or an old, I don't really buy old subs or anything like that, but if it was a 5512 with big bevels that had been ground down, that's a non-starter, right? right? But if it's lived a life and the dial, like the Speedmaster that's sitting here, and the dial and hands still look great, that's, I can live with it, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would, I would live with that too. Yeah. yeah, No, I'm, I'm fairly the same way. I care a lot of, a lot less about case condition, my eyes are always drawn to dials first and case shapes first. Mm-hmm. Um, if something for me has been polished once or twice, I'm not going to be picky, um, especially when it comes to budget and what you have to spend on something. Right. Obviously, to check all the boxes isn't always the easiest thing to do financially. Right. So if I have to give up one thing, it would be a case being polished. But I go right to a dial. The dial has to speak to me first and foremost. Yeah. Obviously, I have some interesting case shapes here. You got a few. Yeah. Not the most. Um, you don't like to be defined by one thing. No, I really don't. Yeah. And um, I think it comes down to not necessarily these case shapes attracting me the most, but more so the dials first and then the case shapes. Yeah. That's kind of what I look for. Yeah. I agree. All right. Longa one Turbion or Longa one Mother of Pearl? We're going straight to it. Oh, this is the question. Oh man, uh, I think I would have to go. As much as I love the one that I have, uh, the Dubail Mother of Pearl Blue Lock One, that thing has captivated me from the moment I saw it. I didn't know it existed until three months ago. And yeah, Collect a Man had one. Yeah, yeah. So Silas and Co. posted that, and it blew my mind. And living I, in America, I was eight hours behind you yeah. know, everybody else, and it sold immediately. I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but I think I messaged you right away, and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, there were a few that were like, yeah. did you know this existed? Yeah, uh, mortgage the house. Yeah, it was, that, man, those are crazy, and I think there's 25 of them, so yeah, yeah. not many. Uh, I think I'd have to go with that, but I, I do love the Torbion. I mean, it's undeniable, but, yeah. but both are undeniable yeah. for sure. Um, a lot of people in the workforce shy away from having nice things because they, they worry about their peers caring or someone saying something to them or a superior noticing. And I couldn't believe less in that theory, but mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, uh, obviously, and that gets toned down with vintage stuff. Yeah. But being in the professional world, watches is obviously just a hobby for you. What is your take on watches in the workplace? Because I personally just don't give a shit what other people think. Yeah. And I think it's more of like, good on you yeah. sort of thing. But what's your take? It's an interesting question. I've, I say interesting because I, I have actually thought about it quite a bit. And it's not something that I've ever really talked about with other people, other sure. collectors. Um because it is, it's not one size fits all. Everybody's comfortable with different stuff. I think I always made a point to wear everything. So, and part of it is that it's vintage, right? So, if I'm wearing an old Speedmaster, it's not going to look like a, you know, blingy Rolex, sure. right? Like a gem set yacht master or something like that. But uh, I made a point to always wear like the full collection. And the funniest thing in thinking back on it now is that almost nobody noticed that it was like a different watch every single day. Or if they did notice, they never said anything. Right. Nobody's ever held it against me. And uh, yeah, other than maybe a couple people who, you know, were also into watches and they'd see one and say, oh yeah, I have one of those. It's just never really come up. So I think to your point, it's more, it's more evidence that just be yourself. Right. right? Maybe, well, within bounds. 
Like yeah. if you're <laughs> yeah, if you're wearing something crazy and like I said, if you're wearing like a rainbow Daytona to a you know an accounting meeting or For something sure. like that, that's yeah. probably not the attention you want when you're the CFO. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Uh, if you just sold the company, like walking right. in with something that's half a million dollars on the wrist, probably not a great look. But uh, no, I you know I don't find myself in those situations. So. Yeah, I I just think it's one of those things. I, you know. I've heard people say like, oh, I, I don't want to buy a house from somebody, from a real estate agent that shows up in a nice car. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, well, wouldn't you want to buy a house from that person? Because you know that they're good at their job and they do right by both ends yeah. to be able to afford a car like that. Right. Or do you want someone who showed up on a unicycle and so it's, is going to try and sell your home? <laughs> it's really funny you say that because I, one of the first firms, investment firms that I worked at um, in Chicago the founder was a huge Rolex guy, huge. So every day he'd have a different Rolex on. Pretty Most people listening are probably like drawing the caricature of what this guy looked like. Of course. <laughs> uh, but he would go to meet with investors and sometimes I'd go with him and he would put a Timex Ironman on. Interesting. And I asked him finally, because he knew I was into watches and you know vice versa. I was like, why are you hiding this, right? Like all it's going to show is that you're successful, right? Or... or if if at the, at the worst they see it all the time, right? right, with other people, and he's like, no, I I think that this shows that I'm fiscally responsible, I'm prudent, I'm down to earth, I'm humble. So he had like thought through all <laughs> yeah. of these angles, but at the end of the day, I always looked at it as like, but you're faking it, right? right. You're literally wearing that just to try to appease them or what they want you to be. And right. then you're putting your Rolex on in the cab back to the office, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I've always thought it was a bit, you know, two-faced yeah. to, to be thinking through it on that level. And you there's know, a really wa- just worrying what people think about you to that extent too. Yeah. There's a watch meme hidden in there somewhere. Yeah. 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 And I really hope he doesn't listen to this. I, <laughs> it's okay. I, Hey, I enjoyed everything else about working. Yeah. Yeah. We'll but let's way. burn that Iron yeah. Man. With <laughs> um, have you had the hard decision of selling stuff out of the collection? Yeah, all the time. Well, I shouldn't say all the time. It's usually uh, because I've set my sight on something else. Um, I am not as good as many of my friends and peers who do the one in, one out or Forget try it. to stay close to that. Um, I typically will sell when I have my eyes set on something like the Torbion, right? right? Or the 1815 chronograph and it's not lying around money for me. It's of one of those things where like I would have to make asset allocation decisions. Right. And I don't want to do that because watches, it's one of those things where if you keep it over here and you're selling watches to buy another watch, it feels very symbiotic. As soon as you're starting to sell stocks or mortgage your house or do crazy stuff like that, it's that's, like, whoa, we got yeah, out of control with that's this. That's less yeah. easy to explain to <laughs> right. a significant other. Yeah. There's that aspect as well. Yeah. yeah, it's a little easier when you're, you're, you say that you're fully replacing the cost when yeah. it's coming out. So it's typically because something else is coming in. Yeah. Well, you could see my wife is warming up to the whole watch thing. She made you a whole breakfast here. <sighs> just amazing. to come here and talk about watches. It's amazing, yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to selling something, Obviously, that's the hardest thing to do with for any collector is let go of something that you're passionate about. Have you found, though, that when you get the thing that you're trading for, you lose the sense of like, oh, I really miss that? I don't know what this says about me, but the second that I make up my mind to sell something, no matter how many memories I have of it, great example, this is the watch that I got married in. I, it was really early. I only had two watches back then. Right. But I bought, I guess I bought my third, a Speedmaster, while we were on our honeymoon. Um, and I got back and it was the most I'd ever spent. It was $5,000. All of a sudden I had three watches and I was like, this is out of control. I need to rebalance it. The one I thought fit the least out of the three was that, was the one I got married in. <laughs> and I sold it. And it was yep. one of those things where like, even today, do I miss it? Maybe a little bit, but that's the only one that even comes close. Right. Everything else is, as soon as I've made up my mind, it's it's basically already gone in my head. I'm the same way. Really? Like, that makes me feel better. I thought maybe it meant I was heartless or something. No, once I, I mean, maybe it means we both are, but <laughs> once I have the idea that I'm letting go of something, my focus is now, how do I sell this thing? Right. And I think that's probably why we end up feeling that way is because then our, our mindset goes to, 
I got to get cash for this thing. And you start like <laughs> right. enjoying the thing. You're like trying to get rid of it. Right. So I, I'm with you there. I think, sure, there's things. Do I wish I still had everything? Of course. I think any collector does that has to sell yeah. stuff. But when you get rid of the thing, kind of is what it is. I, yeah, I think you should, most- you, you should actually be superseded with joy from the new thing you're getting right. from the thing you're letting go of. I think most people, if they're really honest, they don't sit around and ruminate on... I can't believe I sold this, right? And, and maybe some people do, and that's totally up to them. But sure. My guess is that the majority, if they really think about it, they don't really miss whatever they sold. Unless you're a dealer and you sold, yeah, something that's ten times something that now. I'm looking yeah. at here <laughs> a lot, long time ago. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, any of the watches in your obviously stories are a big thing with collecting, right? So, yeah. any of the watches in your collection come with a story, whether uh, it was from you buying it in a crazy scenario or you know it's previous history? Honestly, a lot of them. And I, well, a lot of them back when I started my website, right? So I started writing about them and a big part of why, I mean, it's just a creative outlet. Let me be clear. My website is not doing millions of page views per month. <laughs> I haven't written anything and written anything in probably like nine months, right? So switch it over to OnlyFans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that that would be any better. Yeah. Uh, so the, you know, the, the impetus for doing that though was I was hunting like crazy. I would come home and I would be on Craigslist. I'd be on eBay. I'd be searching auctions in like foreign countries and stuff. And I ended up with a bunch that had pretty good stories. And so I started the site just as a creative outlet for myself to flex something other than kind of like finance numbers, that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so there's a there's a lot that, that I've kind of tried to document that have decent stories. I think the one that probably means the most to me, though, is like the one I just talked about, the Speedmaster that I bought. That was the third one. Um, I was on my honeymoon with my wife which is a good thing to say and yeah. clarify. Let's just make that note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> note that. Uh, and we were in Copenhagen at the tail end of it. So mm-hmm. we've been traveling for like six weeks. It was awesome. I didn't have a job at the time. So we just went on an open-ended honeymoon. It was the best six weeks of my life. And uh, we were in Copenhagen. I was watch crazy, but I only owned a couple at this point. And I kind of looked to my left walking. And it was the last night of the trip. That's the other thing. Looked to the left, saw just a store that said vintage on a little shingle hanging outside. So I was like, all right, let's walk by. It was mostly clothes, luggage, stuff like that. But on the floor in the store window, the display window, there were five watches. And one of them was an Ed White Speedmaster. Mm. And like I didn't have a Speedmaster at the time, but I, as many people just getting into vintage that's one of the places you start, right? Because it's just 100%. iconic. Yeah. And so I see it and I'm like, we have to go in. So we go in, we start talking to the guy who owns the shop. He says, oh, these are actually my watches. I just opened it a month ago and, you know, I'm selling the watches to help finance the next phase of the store and all that kind of stuff. So he pulls it out. We start talking about it. He's like, do you know what this is? Only at like a surface level. Of course. But I feigned like I did. I was like, oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wax a little poetic. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, uh, the bracelet. I <laughs> yeah. love that. Right. <laughs> so we sit there and talk. And he's kind of like looking at me. The shop's about to close. And uh, he's like, do you do you want it? Because we're closing pretty soon here. And I was like, let me get your card. I'm going back to America tomorrow. I will reach out to you as soon as I'm back because I can't even get money out at this point, right? But I'm like, please hold it for me. So then my wife and I go around the corner to this bar and we sit down, we grab Wi-Fi from the bar, obviously grab a drink. And my hands are like shaking because I'm so excited. Yeah. And I'm just like crash coursing Speedmasters and that reference and trying to make sure it all looks right and all that kind of stuff. The entire trip home the next day, I'm just thinking about it. Oh, sure. I get back, I reach out to uh, James Lambden. He doesn't probably even remember this because this was 2014, <laughs> but it's like I'm, you know, emailing sure. him saying, does this look correct to you? And the funny thing is James actually told me not to buy it because he said it the underside of the lugs was polished. So James, I'm not going to let you forget that, but uh, it ended up being like a really great example. I bought it. um, And that's like where this really spiraled and started. So if I was pointing like, yes, I bought the Luminox watch and all that stuff, but that's the one with the story that like truly is the foundational moment for me 
where the stories that come with these things, now that's my story, right? Sure. It had a whole life before it came to me. That was a really cool moment for my wife and I. And ever since then, that's been a cornerstone of my collection. So that's kind of like the exhilarating thing about collecting. You don't have to necessarily know what that guy did yeah, right. with that watch beforehand. What is this? Right. Yeah. But it's the idea of that you found it, you knew that he owned it, you knew that he was selling it to expand his store. Yeah. And yeah, that's just the best. Well, and I think the coolest thing, and I'm I'm sure that you and Madeline feel this way too, right? It it becomes this shared joy. Hundred percent. Because your spouse sees how excited you are from it, and then it makes them excited, right? And the next time it happens, all of a sudden they're excited from the beginning because they know how momentous this could be. And so I I think it's a really cool thing to share with somebody also, not just watch nerds, but somebody, family, spouse, kids, whatever. If they're around and they see that joy that it gives you and that rush, then I think that explains the whole thing in one experience. Yeah. And to touch on that, I got a bonus question from a friend of ours. Uh, <laughs> okay. Previous Collector's Dream Radio guest, Nick from Mad Patina. Okay. He's a big story guy. Yeah. yeah. He wants to know, he said, he says, in the old days, a lot of your watches came from original owners and families. Uh, for example, you got stuff fresh to market, not necessarily through a dealer. Yeah. Do you believe there are still plenty of amazing watches out there sitting in drawers? If so, he wants to know what you think your next watch slash lucky find will be. It's a complicated question because I don't want to put anybody off from exploring with the fervor that I did and again, going through pages and pages of Craigslist every night. And I think that the reality is it has slowed. I don't really know why the information has been out there for a while. I think really it's the past three years where it's really slowed down, where you see them coming to eBay, coming to Craigslist, some no name auction. It's just not happening as much. And I can't really put my finger on why. Um, I will say they're still out there. So like the most recent two watches that I've purchased are both original family, both Carreras. One's a Volvo dialed Carrera. With Incredible. Really cool inscription on the back. And like that one coming from the family and also seeing the inscription. A lot of people wondered what what's the story behind these Volvo dials? Well, I know, right? Because I was able to to talk to them. And, and that was like a random thing that happened to come together. Um, this other one, the Carrera that's sitting here, that came from a friend of mine, uh, Vintage Robbie on Instagram, right? But he had hunted it down from the original family. But I don't think it happens quite as much to answer the question. Back then, it felt like it was like once every two weeks. And I'm not even a dealer, right? I'm just a guy getting home from work, sitting on my couch, right? surfing internet <laughs> ads and finding stuff. And it was literally every once or two, one or two weeks, something would come up. It's just the hit rates way lower now. So. Yeah. I have a feeling, I mean, you have like antique roadshow showing people who never knew what a Daytona was. Yeah. And this guy from the military had one sitting in a safe right. full set and right. faints on camera, you know? Right. So these people, I think get ideas of like, maybe I should reach out to somebody about this and, not just put it on the internet. And I think dealers are doing a better job of advertising, right? So your recurring guest, Eric Wind, does a phenomenal job promoting himself and, you know, doing pro bono stuff like the Horological Society talks that are out there. He's easy to find, right? Yep. And so for a lot of people, um, it's, it's, if they're going to Google what they have, they're going to see that. Um, so I think that's definitely part of it as well. But the other part of it too, is I have small kids. My life has moved on in some areas. I still love this stuff, but I don't have the time or energy to just put hours into it every week. Mm -hmm. So I could be way wrong and there could be people just getting into this who have way more energy than I do at this point to be, you know, going through the classified ads. And I hope that there's, they're still out there for all of us. For sure. And Nick, if that didn't satisfy you, then you're just going to have to call Call Rob and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, Nick's he's a romantic, so yeah. he probably won't love that answer. But yeah, <laughs> I think it's somewhere in the middle. For sure. Yep. And touching on what you had just said about not necessarily having the same amount of time that you had, right? You're busy with work, you have a family. 
how do you find time to collect still? And subsequently, why do you think it's important for people to have some excess mental real estate to give towards a hobby like collecting? Oh, I think it's so important and Mm -hmm. so necessary to have an area that's still, so for me, it's, yes, it's getting this stuff, it's finding it, it's hunting it, but there's just the learning portion of it still just is the most fun part for me where you find something and you don't know anything about it. Uh, There are a bunch of brands recently, older independents that are now kind of coming into, you know, the limelight. Sure. That I didn't even really know existed. And it's for me, I don't have them yet. I don't own them. Um, I wouldn't say they're even on my list necessarily, but to spend time learning about it, right. That's an outlet. And that is fun. That's not work. That's I'm able to shut down the work for an hour and just kind of dive into stuff like that. So I think that part of it is, is really important. And I think the other thing for me, when I don't have as much energy as I used to for this, I'm grateful that I've made really good friends in this hobby because they are the people who influence me the most, quite honestly. It doesn't have to be me finding these new things. Most of the time it's them and they're excited about what they found and their excitement spills over or I see it and I'm like, I don't get it. I disagree. This is ugly. This is not important. (laughs) You're just trying to pump something that isn't pumpable, right? Like that kind of stuff. And then it, all of that spurs that same learning curve, right? And so I think you ha- you can't do it alone. Some people can, right? And they, they have that drive. But I think as life has kind of gone into that next phase for me, it's it's the friends who have, have continued to make it, you know, what it is. Love it. Yeah. How about your family? Anyone in your family collect or appreciate watches the way you do? They didn't. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say... They didn't like watches. Um, I think my mom's been interested in them more as a jewelry uh, accessory type sure. thing, but her interest has deepened since I got into this. Um, my dad has really only worn two watches the entire time I've known him, um, most of the life that I can remember. And um, one of them is a 16610 sub that he still has and wears all the time. The other, man, this is a bad story, but let's just tell it because we're on here. Let's run it. This is, we're getting into the re- regrets portion of the podcast. All right. uh, well, now we need the beer. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back. Yeah. Uh, so he gave me uh, his Tag Heuer Professional. Mm. Two-tone. It had that bracelet that just rips out your arm hair. I don't know if some people can picture this. They were like yeah. Y-shaped links. Yeah. Very adept at ripping out my hair. They were onto um, something before Manscaped came around. You didn't need it back then, <laughs> yeah, right? You, you just you just wore that. Yeah. Uh, it also didn't help that I didn't know you could even resize bracelets, right? So sure. it's kind of like just jangling on my wrist. He gave me that for graduating college. And I wore that dutifully for the first really three years of my career. And then once I started getting into vintage, I decided, oh, I like this other stuff a lot more, right? So I put it away. I wasn't wearing it. And about a year later, I sold it because I wasn't wearing it. Mm. And I just didn't like the design. And even though I had grown up with my dad wearing it for whatever reason, just a brain fart, I didn't think I'd ever want it. I didn't think I'd ever wear it, right? And so I sold it on eBay. And uh, that was one of the two watches that I can remember. But with that said, he got the sub in the late 90s. You know, I was in middle school at the time. That's the one that I associate most of the memories with. So anyway, he's not a collector, but he does like watches. And he knows. And And dad, I'm so sorry that you (laughs) sold the watch that you gave me. I'll never live that down. The arm hair has grown back, but the watch is not. It will never. (laughs) (laughs) Anything you could share with us in terms of what you're looking at your collection next or what you've kind of really been focusing on with whatever time you do have. So can I ask you a question? Yes. If I say independence, are you going to think that I'm just a cliche? Not at all. I'm looking at some right here. (laughs) Technically. Not really though. I mean, I, so I, I think, I think as with a lot of people who were into vintage very deeply for a long time, once you've experienced all of the brands and all the major references, all that kind of stuff, 
you can, I can always get excited about a, a mint Speedmaster. I can right. always get excited about an amazing Carrera. That's why I can't stop buying them, right? Um, vintage Tudors, I will always love those. But it, you're getting excited about the condition of one watch. It's not as exciting as a completely new category to you. Sure. And so I have come to the independent craze late, which is not good for me, <laughs> as you're probably aware. That market is not what it used to be. It's not. Uh, but there are a couple of independents in particular that I really admire. I really like. I've been scrapping away to try to find some way to be on their consideration some year from now, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there will be stuff that comes before those, but I think supporting a small independent brand is kind of that next step. And as I started out with all this, I do feel like that's kind of cliche with a lot of people like me right now at this point in the watch I don't think so because you know you've tasted a lot over the years and you've owned a lot of things over the years and this is the most common next step for a lot of people yeah in this position and looking at your collection and what you could possibly have next right you've you've had so many other things in your collection it wouldn't make sense for you to have another Pepsi or another Rolex right. in your it just wouldn't make sense yeah I mean, it's, I'm glad that you see it that way. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is the old guard, you know, the guys who were guys and gals who were doing it in the 1980s and same thing. They just went through that curve a lot faster. <laughs> and so I'm trying not to beat myself up over it, but yeah, I, I would say like three years ago, I was not even really open-minded about independence. I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I had a 3940 paddock. I was open to more paddocks. That was pretty much it. Um, I had a Royal Oak and I saw that as, you know, kind of what I needed. Well, I'll explore paddock. I'll get a Royal Oak. I'm good. I don't need any of this new age, you know, right. One off from a guy in a workshop. I don't understand that. What if it's not even a great watch? You know, they're really expensive. And then the more you sit with it and you think about it, you realize that if, if you're trying to support artisans, right? Like people with a vision, arguably there's nothing cooler than doing that at the very beginning and being one of the people who helped them. Right. And, and I'll call out just what many people are probably thinking about too. There's always the Philippe Dufour thought here, right? Where if you pick the right horse, there, there's an element of speculation to all of this. It's just like any investment, right? You're investing in the promise and potential of that person. And there's a lot of ways that can go wrong. Right. And so it's, it is a totally different ball game than buying a vintage GMT or something like that. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm excited to see what ends up there. I mean, we'll see. Sometimes Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> well, if you have to get rid of some of this stuff, I, uh, if you I have see a, good a idea. clear out happening, yeah, yeah. And that might be why, but I would not hold your breath. So, all right. Let's hit the uh, collector's zoom rundown. What do you say? Yeah, sure. All right. One that got away. So this was early 2020, um, right before COVID, actually. And uh, there was an FP Jorn Octa chronograph. Mm. I've never owned an FP Jorn um, earmuffs, FP Jorn lovers, but I've just never loved the brand as much as a lot of other people. Um, I respect it, but it's not really my taste. But the Octa chronograph was like nothing I'd ever seen. Wild. it was just crazy. It yeah. Was whimsical. It was distinguished. It was all these things that I was like, all right, if I'm going to get an FP Jorn, this is the one. And, um, there was one that came up and I was able to handle it and everything. And it was 70 grand. And I remember at the time thinking that is a shitload of money. And I don't think I'm ready to take that step. And I think literally six months later, those same watches were a quarter of a million dollars. So yeah, madness. It was, it's not all money too. Cause like, I think I would still have that watch if I had bought it back then. I mean, um, look at some of the other stuff that's sitting on the table and where things have gone probably right. since you bought them forever ago, you know, on smaller scales. Yes. Um, but yeah, probably a similar margin if you're just looking at right. a percentage, you know, right. Yeah. Right. to reduce it to that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're reducing me to tears. So yeah, well, I, I cry about it once yeah. in a while. Yeah. So good for anybody. Good for whoever did buy that. Yeah. That's all I'll say. Yeah, but screw you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> On deck circle. I think it goes to the independents. Um, I hesitate to even say which ones because 
it, it honestly, it'll change. And there are a couple and I have no idea if I'll end up getting them. Right. But I yep. think, I think that's definitely the next phase of all of this for me. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be good. I can't wait. Unobtainable. So, you know, museum too expensive, just no end in sight of this thing ever coming into to play for anybody unless you're, you know, sitting in Monaco on a yacht. Yeah. Well, this dovetails with the last because I think anybody, any of my close friends know that for the past couple of years, I've been obsessed with uh, Rexep, Rexepi's, you know, debut. Yep. And then the second version of it as well. Um, I always liked the Acrivia stuff, but I it it wasn't quite an avenue I was ready to jump into. And as soon as that came out, I was immediately in love with it. Yep. That stuff's a little bit more avant-garde, yeah. technical. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. The cases are very different. They wear differently. This, if you look at my collection, I think that one fits a lot more. Mm-hmm. The chronometer, chronometra contemporane. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, no, that, that ship has sailed because I think the last one just hammered for a million dollars and the wait list is probably 4,000 people deep and I'm on it, but I'm probably way far down on it. So, um, but you're not 4,000. So. Well, actually, <laughs> my good friend Adam Golden and um, Sasha Davidoff were visiting uh, Rex Up this past Watches and Wonders, and they were nice enough to send me a video of Rex Up addressed to me, telling me that I probably would not get one of his watches. <laughs> And he had no idea when I would be able to get one. And it was very nice. He it's was like very a cameo. cordial. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I saw it because they're obviously in Switzerland, right? Sure. So I'm waking up and I have this video that Adam sends me. And he's like, hey, Rex Up wants to say something to you. And I see the, the thumbnail. Yeah. And I'm like, what the hell am I looking at? Yeah. I click it and it starts with, hey, Rob. And I was like, what is going on right now? <laughs> at first, you're probably like, oh, shit. I'm, I'm getting the call soon. I was... <laughs> It, I hate Adam so much because he, those same two a year prior had played an April fool's prank on me that they were both getting, uh, the RRCCs yeah. that they had both gotten the call <laughs> and they were both getting them. And Adam said, I don't even want this thing. I'm just going to flip it. And you're like, Screw it you. drove me insane. <laughs> I probably said things to him that I shouldn't have accused him of things that I shouldn't have. And I did not even think that it was like an April Fool's joke, and it was. That's hilarious. Uh, so yeah, they took that pretty far. But um, anyway, that I would say that's unobtainable. Page one rewrite. So money, no object. You could collect anything besides watches. What would it be? At the risk of sitting on cliche corner again, I have always loved cars. Always. Yep. I had um, stacks of automobile magazine, car and driver magazine. I made my dad buy me subscriptions to those every year. Yeah. I mowed the lawn. I worked for it yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I, I still had stacks of them. Um, I would build my dream cars in high school because that was right when like the online car builder tool came out. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. You could spec it out and go into the interior. I mean, now you, you've been able to do that for a long time. Sure. Back in 2003 or whatever it was, that was revolutionary. Uh, so I've always loved them. And then, you know, started working. I was living in Chicago for a decade. Didn't even have a car. Now I've, you know, moved into an old house that doesn't have garage space to right. accommodate one. So it's, if I could rewrite it, it'd be amazing to start with that and experience some of those cars. Um, I did buy my high school dream car a couple of years ago. Um, Congrats. E- well, I only had it for a year. Oh, but cool. <laughs> it was uh, an E46 M3 and it was fun to scratch that itch and stuff. Of course. But, uh, I learned <laughs> that it's not as easy to collect cars as it is watches. They don't make little cases like this to. They uh, don't. And to, <laughs> maybe to store some old parts. Them yeah, and, you know, it's, there's all kinds of hoops to jump through. So more power to anybody out there who you know has the willpower and the stamina and the space to do it. But different ball game. Yeah, it yeah. really is. But that would be ideal. I'm with you there. Well, and you you're from the car world too, right? Yep. So you probably Family know a ton and, of people who. Have, a lot of people that we know that collect cars. Yeah, you know, are right. in that same in that same boat, uh, like, you know, circle there. And yeah, I mean, you just look at some of these folks and they have people that are managing just their car collection for them Yeah, and working on them every week. Right. I mean, most people think that that's just like a Jay Leno thing, but no, it's not. I mean, there's, there's guys out there that we know that 
have people managing their car collections. Right. And you have to, because it, it's a lot more tedious than this. Yeah. No, it's right. If these stop working, you can just decide, uh, I'll send it to the watchmaker next month or six months from now or whatever. It can sit. It's okay. It can sit. Yeah. And if your car is sitting broken for a long time, forget it. Most people are not able to live with that. Right. Cause they're just thinking of a deteriorating car. So I don't know. It's, a different ball game, but yeah, it's if I could start over with unlimited resources and space, I would definitely start there. And I think the other thing is like a lot of people try and think logically about collecting anything. And so when you think about cars, less the vintage market, because obviously vintage goes up, modern right. goes down. Right. But value wise, it's so much harder to choose a car if you're basing things off value. Yes. Of something that will go up in value that you're not going to take a bath on right. versus a watch. It's an enthusiast market, 100%. 100%. Yeah. As Which, is this. I was going to say, watches too, but not quite to the level, just because the maintenance is not the same. Right. Yeah. I don't live this way, but if anyone I knew wanted to get into collecting and they wanted to do it for a financial aspect, it'd be pretty easy to point them in a couple directions of like, hey, buy here. Right. Your money will go up. Right. Like it's pretty right. cut and dry there. Yeah. Cars, totally. you could know everything about cars Yeah. and forget it. You know, ask me if I made money on that E46. <laughs> I'll ask you when we're done recording. I <laughs> yeah, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want you to have to go through yeah, that in front of everybody. Yeah, yeah. How about the goat? <sighs> you know, I listened to this podcast, so I knew this question was coming. <laughs> yes. Um, I had to think about it. I, I do think, um, I, I'd say there's two goats. One who I don't know at all. One who I know pretty well. The one I don't know at all is Jason Singer. Mm-hmm. I have revisited that Talking Watches episode more than maybe any other video out there. Yep. Like if I look at, and that's probably not even representative of what, of what he has now, right? Like it's changed even since then. Um, but I just look at the scholarship, the depth of stamina, references, like- the stamina to do that for so long. Um, I think his collection from what I have seen which he's not very public either. So really that video is all I'm going on. But knowing that that's like scratching the surface probably, I think he's the one who piques my curiosity the most. Yeah. Like I would love to just sit down and go through his vault one day. Right? I know. Um, and he's also around here too. So he's down the street. So maybe we should just go up. knock on the door. Jason. Hey, door da- we're DoorDash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I put him up there for sure just as a um, – you know, somebody to look up to from afar. Um, I think the other person who I respect a lot is somebody I got to know well in Chicago, Jason Freed, another member of this podcast. Yep. And uh, they're another member of the club here. Yep. Uh, I've always admired his uh, just taste across a number of things and also his approach to collecting because it's not as emotional as mine. But I think he's very exacting about what he likes and why he likes it. And I've seen his tastes evolve and also come right back to where they were and evolve again. And I think, I don't know, it's, um, I've always admired the way that he can kind of flow through that much more, much easier than I can. Yeah. I wish, um, I wish, I, I mean, obviously he doesn't wish this, but I wish he was more public on social media so I could talk to him more often because he's he's really good on email. Like I could yeah. send him an email and he'll email back, but it's fun to just be able like I just want to send him something. Yeah. Or like something I see that like reminds me of something he may collect or like. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean you just know from talking to him or listening to that episode that his taste is just impeccable and he goes deep. Yeah. And, and he researches. I mean he's not making rash decisions. Like he knows everything about the thing that he wants to buy. And he's a big fan of Longa. I mean, yeah, it was, I don't know if he still is, but he was. No, he is. And it's um, it's funny because he loaned me a closed case back early Longa one, very early in my, not very early in my collecting days, but before Longa, before people even cared what a closed case back meant, right? right? Or like when it was from. And uh, I spent time with it and I liked it. But again, I, I wasn't quite ready yet. I wasn't quite there. And so it was one of those things where I said, uh, maybe in a couple of years, like this was great. Thank you for letting me have this. And, you know, he had explained the significance of it and how hard the early ones are to find and all that kind of stuff. But again, I, in my curve, I wasn't quite ready for it yet. And a couple of years later, I was like, what an idiot. I should have, 
I knew I liked it back then. I should have just yep. gone full into it then, right? Before prices and the market changed. But you can only do what you can do. That's pretty cool that he would lend you something to play around with for a bit. I mean, he probably won't like me saying that publicly. I, I would yeah. say we got to know each other very well while we were there. Of course. So, yeah. And yeah. he's a super generous guy with his time and yeah. stuff like that. But he's also very busy. Um, so that's pretty neat. Yeah. All right. Hunt or the ownership? Probably the hunt goes back to the educational intellectual side I was talking about earlier. Um, it's really fun to find something new and then be captivated by it. And, uh, I think when you have it, I really appreciate this, the, you know, references and the watches that I have. Um, but in most cases it's not as exciting on a day-to-day basis as finding something totally new and trying to, you know, make it yours. Yeah, for sure. I think, also, you've had some amazing stories transpire within your collecting that the hunt has to be what it's about for you. I mean, right. stumbling upon the Speedy in Copenhagen. I mean, right. yeah, owning the thing is great because it came to fruition, but finding that and I don't know, I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, and if you're able to be lucky enough to pair a story with a watch like that, right, then it's it's kind of a shared experience because every time you look at it, you can tap into that rush and that memory. Um, you can tap into the hunt, right? But um, yeah, for a lot of the other ones that don't have a crazy story behind them or a crazy hunt even, um, it's great to have them, but those are often the ones that end up going the fastest, right? Because sure. that connection's just not there. Love it. Yeah. All right, most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Oh, no, I... I prepared for this answer and I'm blanking. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, yeah, what could it be? I'm looking at a lot of things here. What was I going to say? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think I am. I uh, I was thinking back to the earliest thing I collected. This is going to be the weirdest answer you've ever heard. I need it. Let's run it. Uniball pens. <laughs> yes. Do you remember those? Of course. Elementary, Undeniable. Elementary school Rob yeah. was making my parents take me to Office Depot Running to the pen aisle Love to it. grab a variety pack with one different color that I didn't have yet. I mean, I was obsessed. Love so, it. yeah, if I think back to one thing that points to that gene, I'd say Uniball pens probably. Love uh, that. Yeah. It's ultra rare. Yeah. yeah. Well, they haven't they haven't really appreciated like I <laughs> yeah. thought they would in yeah. second grade. But you know what? They're, uh, there'll always be a good memory. So, Love it. Rob, thanks so much for visiting and coming on the podcast. I know you got a bunch of other stuff to get to today other than this that's probably going to actually make you money to buy more <laughs> of these, but uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on and we'll have to do this again. Yeah, thanks for opening your home. It's been awesome. Anytime. Yep. Take care. Thanks. All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. <laughs> <laughs>